Good evening. Uh, again, my name is Caleb Jansen. I'm the church planting pastor of the Gig Harbor United Reformed Church, as uh, Michael has mentioned. And we meet at 5 p.m. on Sunday evenings at the Lighthouse Christian School here in Gig Harbor. So if you're either looking for a church or don't have an evening worship service, uh, you are more than welcome to join us. And I would love to meet you and uh, have you uh, join us in our, our time of worship. It is a joy for me to be able to be here with you all this evening to uh, bring you God's word from the book of Philippians. I actually just finished preaching this book, so it was a fitting time for, for Michael to ask me. So if you'd please turn in your Bibles, if you have them, or your phones, or device, to Philippians chapter 3. We'll be considering verses 1 through 11 uh, this evening. So Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. And this is one of my favorite passages. It's one of the, the great passages of this, this wonderful book. And in this passage, Paul explains for us our salvation. Now, oftentimes when Scripture uses this word salvation, it's using it in, in a broad sense to refer to the whole work of redemption that's applied to our hearts. This includes our justification, that declaration from God that we have been forgiven and that we are the, the recipients of this imputed righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ, this onward progressive sanctification that's done through the Holy Spirit, and that great hope that we have of the resurrection of the body. Paul goes through that entire sequence in, in our passage. So please now uh, turn your attention to the reading of God's word. This is Philippians chapter 3, 1 through 11. The Apostle Paul says this, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Oh, excuse me, I have actually verses uh, 1 through 9 down here on my, on my notes. So we'll address verses 10 through 11 in our, in our sermon. I apologize for that. Let's pray before we turn to consider uh, Paul's words here in, in Philippians chapter 3. Oh Lord, we thank you for this time that we can gather to consider uh, your word. We thank you that you have indeed given us your inscripturated word. May your spirit be upon us. Uh, may you illuminate this passage before us, and may you encourage us as we continue this pilgrimage to our great heavenly homeland. 
which awaits us on the other side of this life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We will notice that Paul begins this passage with this command to rejoice. And Paul's intention is that we don't just do this one day of the week, but that we do this continually. In fact, he makes this point explicit in chapter 4, verse 4, where he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. However, I think we all would acknowledge that our experience of joy in this life is quite elusive. But why is this the case? I don't think we have to think too hard to realize uh, why this is the case. If we look around ourselves on a general level, there are many things that bring about the very opposite of joy right now. We're going through a pandemic. Our country is facing divisions, social unrest, like we haven't seen for quite some time. Because of these things, some of our normal patterns and rhythms of life have been disrupted. Things seem far from normal. This can leave us angry, depressed, scared. But moreover, on a more personal level, I think we all have our own crosses to bear, our own trials that we've been called to endure. This may look like health issues, relational strain with others, financial difficulties, or even being content with present circumstances. Or the list can go on and on and on. We all have our own crosses to bear. And furthermore, even when we consider the good things in our life, good food, a vacation, time with family and friends, the holidays are coming up, even these times leave us wanting more. They don't fully satisfy our hearts. So where do we find a joy, a joy that will be with us in every circumstance of life? Well, the Philippians would have been asking a very similar question here in chapter 3. As you may know, as you've been going through this book, they were facing division, relational conflict. There were false teachers in the city of Philippi that were seeking to lead them astray, along with many of the other sufferings and struggles that plague all human beings who live in this fallen world. The fact of the matter is, our joy, the Philippians' joy, will continue to be elusive so far as we find it merely in this world. Therefore, Paul in this passage, yes, he's telling us to rejoice, but notice what he says. He says, rejoice in the Lord. Now, these three words are important. Rejoice in the Lord. As I mentioned before we read this passage, Paul will be explaining for us this salvation, this work of God through the Spirit in our lives, from our justification all the way to the resurrection of the body. Thus, in the Lord really is referring to the Lord's salvation of us in Christ. Therefore, we are to rejoice in this great gift of salvation that is ours because of the grace of our sovereign Lord. Therefore, it's our salvation that gives us reason to rejoice no matter what we're going through, no matter what circumstances may befall our life. This is good news, isn't it? We have reason to rejoice no matter what we're going through because of this salvation. Well, the question that this leads us to is, how do we attain this joy of our salvation? I mean, this is a pretty rich privilege, that we have reason to rejoice no matter what we're going through. Well, how do we attain this joy of our salvation? 
we do four things in particular which I would like us to dwell upon this evening. And the first of which is we need to look out for the enemy of the joy of our salvation, the enemy of the joy of our salvation. Now, if you have your Bibles pulled up, I would invite you to look with me again at verse 2. Paul begins in quite strong language. He says, look out, or you could even say, beware. And he's telling them to look out for false teachers, Judaizers, in, in Philippi who are seeking to lead them astray. And Paul describes these individuals in verse 2 by using uh, three terms in particular. And these terms are seeped in irony. We don't have the time to get in, fully unpack what Paul is doing here. But by using these terms, Paul is telling us that these false teachers were trusting in themselves for their salvation. So real briefly, if you see that first term that Paul uses, he calls them dogs. Now, the Judaizers prided themselves in their lineage. They were the true seed of Abraham. And they would look down upon the Gentiles and call them dogs. They were mutts because they didn't have that rich lineage. But Paul is turning this term on its head. Because now in the New Covenant, who are the true people of God? What's those who have faith? And therefore, Paul is saying the Judaizers, though they have this great lineage, they really are the dogs, the mutts, because they don't have faith. Well, the second term that Paul uses is evildoers. Again, this tells us that these false teachers were trusting in their works. Something in themselves, they believed, could, uh, could contribute to this righteousness that we all need to stand before this holy God. But Paul says, no, even the best works in this life are tainted, imperfect, defiled in sin, Therefore, they're evildoers. And lastly, Paul says that they are mutilators of the flesh. Now again, this indicates for us that they were trusting in their circumcision. They, they, they failed to realize that circumcision was merely a sign of the covenant, as Paul says in Romans 4. And they were trusting in that mark of the flesh to save them, to be part of what they need before God. And Paul is now is equating them with pagan religions who lacerate the flesh. And in verse 3, Paul reminds the Philippians that they themselves are the true people of God. They are the saved. They are the justified. And he's telling them not to let the enemy, these false teachers, seek to subvert the joy of their salvation. Well, we, of course, aren't living in first century Philippi, so who are some of the, the enemies of our joy today as we gather here in 2020 in Gig Harbor? And yes, this could look like false teachers. False teachers are individuals that plague every church, every Christian in every age, and in our internet age and social media age, there, there's many people who are purporting a false gospel. However, I, I do believe there's still yet another enemy that's probably quite a bit more relevant to all of us. And that enemy, I believe, is our own conscience. Yes, our conscience is used of God to convict us of sin. But our conscience can also be used as a tool of the devil to turn the eyes of our faith inward upon ourselves. 
And in this way, our conscience seeks to do the very thing that the Judaizers, these false teachers, sought to do to the Philippian church. Turn our eyes off of Christ and onto ourselves. Now, as a pastor in a Reformed denomination, we subscribe to some confessions from the Reformational era. Similar to how most churches have statements of faith, we, our statement of faith, as it were, are, are derived from the Reformational era. And one of our uh, confessions or catechisms, actually, is the Heidelberg Catechism. Very rich and warm pastoral document. And in question and answer 60 of this document, it asks this, how are you righteous before God? And the answer is only by true faith in Jesus Christ. That is, although my conscience accuses me that I've previously sinned against all the commandments of God, have never kept any of them, and prone always to all evil. I think we all can relate to this, can't we? The whisperings of our conscience can oftentimes go like this. You call yourself the justified, the saved, even after what you did this last week, last night. Can you really believe in this salvation from a God who seems so absent in this world? This is not only false teachers, it's our own conscience that seeks to take away that joy of our salvation. So we need to fight back, brothers and sisters. And this is why it's so important that we know what we believe and why we believe it. It's important that we have a theology of God, of his revelation to us. Now, sometimes theology can be uh, portrayed as only for bookish people, but theology is very practical. It's eminently practical. Because when the prosecution of your conscience comes against you, what response do you have? Now, the only good response is from the Word of God, but what do you know of God's Word? How much of God's Word do you have stored up in your heart? In moments when you're driving to work, washing the dishes, or whatever else you might be doing, and that, that prosecution comes, the accusations are railed against you. Do you have a response? Well, as you can see, the main tactic of, of our enemy is to point the finger at us, at you, to turn the eyes of your faith inward. Therefore, the second thing that we need to do to experience this joy of our salvation is intentionally look away from self. It would seem to make sense. We need to look away from ourselves because looking to ourselves will never lead to this kind of joy that Paul is describing for us here. Well, where do we see this in in our passage? Well, as I mentioned, in verse 3, Paul uh, tells the Philippians that they are the true people of God. And he reminds them, tells them that there are those who put no confidence in the flesh. And then he goes on in verses 4 through 6 to describe all the things that he once boasted in. And he goes through this this stellar spiritual resume, a resume that could stand toe-to-toe with the best spiritual resume out there. Yet he says, even he has nothing which could stand before the judgment seat of God. And he describes looking away from himself and his accomplishments in a number of ways. For instance, in verses 7 through 8, he indicates that he counts it all as loss. In verse 9, he says that he has no righteousness of his own, 
which could save him. In verse 8, which in, in some, some sense is a climactic statement, he says that it all is as dung or manure. That's how Paul describes everything that he once boasted in. It's like dung. It's worthless when it comes to, to saving him before a holy God. It's worthless when it comes to bringing this joy that transcends our circumstances. Now, I grew up on a farm in the Midwest, and one of my least favorite chores to do growing up was to clean out calf pens. And our farm, the calf pens were in an enclosed barn. I remember this job being particularly unpleasant on hot, humid Midwestern days. You're in this barn, it feels like 100 degrees, it's humid, you have the wheelbarrow, the pitchfork. As soon as you start shoveling up the manure, the ammonia from the manure just fills the air, it's stifling. This was not a pleasant job. Yet this is the imagery that Paul uses to describe all of his earthly achievements. It's like the calf pen of manure. So Paul is saying that when you look to yourself, whether it be your career, your intellect, your family, your accomplishments, your looks, your personality, or anything else for your salvation or to give you that joy that only God himself can give you, you will end up in this calf pen of manure, as it were. Indeed, when you look to yourself, I really think that there's two calf pens that you'll end up in. And neither calf pen is, is pleasant. You'll either end up in this calf pen of pride or despair. And I really think we so often jump over between these two pens. So if we think that we actually can keep God's law, you know, we have a very dumbed-down version of God's law, we think that we can actually do it, we're going to be filled with pride. But pride never leads to joy. You know, as C.S. Lewis once said, pride is inherently competitive. It only satisfaction comes from having more than someone else. It doesn't have satisfaction in the thing itself. It's only satisfied by having more than the next person. Well, there's always someone who has more, who is more talented and better and gifted. And this is why some of the most wealthiest people are some of the most unhappy people, because they're never satisfied. Or if we have a, a correct view of God's law, in all of its fullness and demands, we're going to be filled with despair. How could we ever stand before a holy God? But how attracted, how attracted our fallen nature is to one of these two calf pens. We go there over and over again, not realizing that we're, we're sleeping and living in manure. Well, so far, I haven't really told you any positive reason to uh, find joy in this salvation. We are to look out for these enemies, right? These enemies which seek to subvert the joy of our salvation. We are to look away from ourselves because we don't find this joy in ourselves. Well, this now leads us to my third point, which is we need to look to Christ by faith. We need to look to Christ by faith. And here we're, we're getting to the main substance of how we find this joy. 
Paul tells us that Christ himself is our joy, and we receive him through faith. Now, in verses 7 through 9, Paul now describes this relationship that he has with Christ in a number of ways. In verse 8, he speaks of knowing Christ. He speaks of gaining Christ. In verse 9, he speaks of being found in Christ and having his righteousness. If you look with me in verse 9, Paul says this about the righteousness of Christ. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. What Paul is describing here is our justification. This declaration of of God himself that he now views us, views you, according to the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. I mean, that is good news, brothers and sisters. God does not view you according to your inherent morality or righteousness. He views you as if you had never sinned and had perfectly obeyed God's law. That's what Paul's saying here. That's your fundamental identity. He says, we look to Christ in order to receive this gift. And this looking is an act of faith. Faith is that instrument, the means by which we receive this great and glorious blessing. Or to put it another way, faith is the key that unlocks this door of the joy of our salvation. Well, what is faith then? Faith clearly is very important. What is faith? Well, a lot, a lot could be said about faith. I think fundamentally, faith could be defined, described as believing that Christ lived and died for you. Not for someone out there, but for you personally. So do you believe that? Do you believe that Christ saved you? Do you believe that when Christ was hanging on that cross, he wasn't just thinking of a generic sum of people out there somewhere, but he had you personally in mind. Do you believe that what motivated Christ to get up each day and perfectly fulfill God's law was to provide you personally with a righteousness that you would be unable to perform? Or think of a particular sin that you've been struggling with lately. Do you believe that Christ was tempted in that very same area, yet he was faithful so that you wouldn't have to be judged for that sin? And faith is believing that Christ did all that for you. And the great news, brothers and sisters, is when we believe this this salvation, more particularly this justification, this righteousness that, that is ours, It's ours forever. It cannot be lost. It's yours on the sunny days, as it were, or on the stormy days. It's yours when you seem to be walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And it's yours when you seem to be riding on the mountaintops. It's yours during times of trial. It's yours during times of blessing. Therefore, because this is the case, we truly do have reason to rejoice no matter what we are going through, no matter what our circumstances are. Now imagine, for most of us, the disconnect doesn't necessarily come in knowing that 
we have salvation. But we oftentimes seem to lack the joy that's meant to come along with that salvation. And here I think it's important to distinguish joy as an emotion and joy, joy as an action. You know, that, that feeling, that emotion of happiness or joy, it comes and goes. You can't really control that. But we can control pursuing a life of joy, pursuing a life of rejoicing. I mean, this is really true of all the virtues. For example, take fear and courage. Like, how do you become a more courageous person? You can't really control the feeling of fear, but you can control your proceeding thoughts, words, and actions. And the more you, you act like a courageous person, the more you'll become a courageous person. So here, I believe we're called to pursue joy with our thoughts, our words, and our actions, regardless of the, whether the emotion is there or not. So how do you seek this joy, this joy of your salvation? Well, we repeatedly fix our minds upon our salvation. We live as if this salvation is actually true. How often we forget who we really are. We forget that we are the recipients of these amazing blessings from God himself. You know, a couple months ago, I was reading an a article in the Wall Street Journal. It was about a man in South Dakota. He was living in a county that had a 50% poverty rate. His house had recently been repossessed. He was living in a camper. And one day he decided to go buy a lottery ticket. And it was his lucky day he won. He receives this phone call. He is the recipient now of $230 million. Completely changes the, the outcome, obviously, of his life, his family's life. The point of the article was he ended up buying this huge ranch. And this ranch was now on the market for like $40 million. It was like a South Dakota record. But the point of this illustration is imagine that man's elation when he received that phone call that he was now the winner. Imagine his emotions. Imagine what he was feeling the days and months to come. I mean, this changes everything. Brothers and sisters, we have blessings that are infinitely greater than any sum of money one could possess. We are the justified. We have been adopted into the family of God. We have an everlasting inheritance that's been sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. We have this promise of the new creation that we're looking forward to. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians, no, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart can even begin to imagine the greatness of what is ours. I believe the psalm gets it right in, in Psalm 4-7 when the psalmist says, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. But how often we forget this. We live as if we're poor when we are the richest people on earth in Christ. So do you fix your minds upon this? Do you speak about this? Do you live as if you truly are the most blessed people on earth? Well, lastly, I'd like us to, to briefly consider how, how do we rejoice more particularly during seasons of suffering? Those are the moments, I think, when we, we the last thing we feel like doing is, is rejoicing. And this, this point will be brief, but I'd like us to dwell upon how we are called to look to the power of Christ in suffering. We're called to look to the power of Christ in suffering. So that's my, my fourth and final point here. 
And if you look at verse 10, verse 10, Paul now is transitioning to the expectations for the Christian life. So you are the justified, now what? He says, well, now the expectation is to grow in this ever-increasing knowledge of Christ. But you may be surprised what he points to. What are the avenues by which we know Christ? Well, we know Christ chiefly in suffering and his resurrection power. That's what he says in verse 10. I think for most of us, when we think about the sufferings of Christ, as he he says here, we are being conformed into the very death of Christ. What do you think of? What what do you think of when when you hear those words? What are the sufferings of Christ? For most of us, I would imagine, we think of people who are being explicitly persecuted because of their faith, maybe in other countries, martyrs of the faith, or, or maybe financial difficulty that's come because you've, you've stood up for Christ in the workplace. Those things that come your way because you are a Christian. If this is all that Paul has in mind, this passage isn't that relevant to us because I would imagine most of us have not experienced all that much persecution because we're Christians. Now, this is no way is to d- d- uh, downgrade this sort of persecution. Not at all. The Bible speaks very highly of those who suffer explicitly because they're Christians. But all I want to do is ask the question, is there more to the sufferings of Christ than, than these kinds of sufferings? I believe Paul would say yes. Now, we don't have the time to really dive deep into this, and we're not going to be able to turn there, but in Romans 8, 17 through 23, you can read that later if you'd like. But I believe Paul here is, has a, a broader perspective on the sufferings of Christ or the sufferings of this present age. In that, in that passage, Paul says that the sufferings of this present age even includes the created order. He says that creation itself is groaning, longing for that day of the redemption of our bodies. This would seem to indicate that even those things that come our way, just because we are fallen human beings living in, a fall, living in a fallen world, even those things are the sufferings of Christ as they're done in union with Christ. Furthermore, I think it's important to, to dwell upon the sufferings of Christ himself. Christ's sufferings pattern our life, right? He suffered to leave an example for us. To refer you back to a passage you considered a few weeks ago, I would imagine, Philippians 2, 6 through 8, we, we hear about what the sufferings of Christ were. In Philippians 2, 6 through 8, we see that, yes, his sufferings were dying a death on the cross, but also includes incarnation, his living a life in a fallen world under the common curse, growing sorrowful and, and tired, hungry, having to interact and live with fallen individuals the futility of work in this world. These all were the sufferings of Christ. Therefore, if those were the sufferings of Christ, then things that we experience just because we live in a fallen world surely would also be the sufferings of Christ. And this, I think, is comforting. There's no second-class suffering. So whatever you're going through this evening, whatever it is, that's the sufferings of Christ. That is the way in which you're being conformed into the death of Christ. So what is the relationship between suffering and power? I think this is very rich understanding that Paul has here between suffering and power. Oftentimes I think we can think of suffering and power as two parallel lines that don't ever overlap. And we just, this year might be the year of, of suffering and then hopefully, Lord willing, next year will be the year 
in which we experience the resurrection power of Christ. And we constantly kind of go back and forth between these two lanes. However, that's not at all how Paul wants us to think of these two things. The and that he's using here to connect them, it has an explanatory force, meaning that suffering and power mutually explain one another. You want to know more about the suffering? You, you look to the resurrection power of Christ. You want to know more about the power of Christ? Look to your suffering. And if, again, we don't have time tonight, but 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 12 also speaks to this relationship. This is, I think, very important to, to realize. Now, I, I'm a big basketball fan. I played basketball in high school and college, and particularly I'm a big LeBron James fan. Now, imagine someone in a pre-COVID world came up to you and said, I really want to, to see LeBron James do what he does best. I want to see him play the game of basketball. Now, there are many, many responses to that question, many bad responses. You could conceivably tell that person, go on a hike in the mountains, go to an orchestra, go to the beach. I mean, those are bad answers. The likelihood of you finding LeBron James playing basketball in any of those venues is, is quite small. No, you're going to tell them to go to the Staples Center, right? Or find his schedule and go to visiting basketball stadiums. Because that's where you're going to find LeBron James doing what he does best. Well, in a similar way, if you want to know where do I experience the resurrection power of Christ in my life, Paul would say, look to your suffering. It's your suffering where you're going to see the resurrection of power of Christ manifested. Or to put it another way, your suffering is the playing court for the resurrection power of Christ to do its work. Now what response should we have? Well, I think based on the title of the sermon, joy would be a pretty good guess. And that, that's right. And I'm not going to turn there with you. I'll just briefly summarize for the sake of time. But in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul again talks about this relationship between power and suffering. And in this passage, he's, he's speaking about this thorn in the flesh, mysterious thorn in the flesh. We don't know what, what it is. It could have been chronic physical pain. It, it was some avenue of suffering. And Paul's pleading with God that God would take it away. And God's response is, my power is made perfect in weakness. And same thing. Power made perfect in the suffering and weakness. And Paul's response, therefore, I will be content. I will be joyful in the midst of this because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Paul doesn't rejoice. He doesn't, he's not content just because he's suffering. He doesn't like suffering for its own sake. No, he realizes that that's where the resurrection power of Christ will be manifested in his life, and therefore he can be content and joyful in it. So brothers and sisters, we too are called to rejoice in the midst of our suffering because that's where God's power will be specifically manifested in your life, sustaining you, giving you the grace to continue to persevere and be fruitful for his kingdom. Well, this evening... I would like to conclude as Paul began, as he, he tells us, finally, my brothers and sisters, let us rejoice in the Lord. More specifically, let us rejoice in the Lord's salvation of us in Christ. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for Christ, our only mediator and intercessor at your right hand. We thank you that he indeed came to this earth to live and die for us and to be resurrected on the third day. 
We pray that you would remind us often of this good news of the gospel is ours freely by faith in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.